How do we support regenerative systems through the build it, built environment? And that is about looking to the past and using technology that is yet to emerge and using ancient processes and looking at some new stuff like crowdsource funding platforms, you know, like you can't leave the past. You have to reclaim the wisdom from the past and the emergent technologies and the emergent all the time in order to manifest something that's really beautiful and impactful and supportive of, of our communities. What is the architecture of restorative justice? What are the structures, the physical built environments? What are the institutional spaces that can foster love and forgiveness instead of disposability? My name is Gibran Rivera, and this is my podcast. Here, I am inviting you into a conversation with remarkable leaders who are devoting their lives to the evolution of consciousness and culture. With this episode, I am introducing you to my dear friend, Diana Van Buren. She is the founder of Designing Spaces and Designing Justice. Diana is an artist who runs an architecture and real estate development firm that works to end mass incarceration. Can you imagine? Diana has been featured in the New York Times. Her TED Talk has more than a million views. And now you have to get the chance to get to know her more intimately. I think you're going to enjoy this podcast. Diana, so good to be with you. Here, I am so excited for our conversation. I know that you have a full, full schedule of doing amazing things. So I'm honored to have a little bit of your time today. Welcome. My pleasure, Chipron. Always love being with you too. You know that. (laughs) It it really feels good. And uh, I want to let people know about you and your work. But I always like to start the podcast by asking guests, to share about a belief that they have changed their mind about. Right? So a belief that likely shaped your identity in some way and that, that you no longer hold to be true. And, and the reason for that, Diana, is that I feel like we are living in a time when people are just doubling down on their beliefs. So there's less openness. And I think it behooves all of us to consider how we change our minds about things that we thought were not changeable. So we would love it if you could start with one of those examples. Well, it's amazing that you set up like that because the thing that I have been changing my belief about is that I don't need the right, right? If we look at politics, I don't need the right to agree with me or to change their minds. Mm-hmm. Right, that that's not something that I need to have happen or need to try to force or make do, but that that I do, we, we have to be on the planet together. It's not like my responsibility to change their mind and fix, fix their way of thinking to be aligned with mine. Mm-hmm. So I don't know what the other alternative is. Like, I don't know then what the solution is. Dialogue would help but I don't, I'm, I'm changing my mind around like, oh, that they've got to fix themselves. They got to stop thinking that. That's a powerful one. And I think a radical one in our time. Uh, I, I, it resonates deeply for me. 
what does that do for you and for you in terms of your way of being walking uh, on the planet in this time with that understanding what changes I think there's like a, and I can feel in my chest, like just a release of tension and stress, right? That's a lot to hold. Like, right. why should I hold that? So I just feel lighter in my body. You know, I can focus on my own work and my own mission and my own values rather than put energy into the other thing. So, um, yeah, it very much resonates with me in terms of um, how I want to be in the world. And and I need energy coming in, right? Right. <laughs> right, right, right. Trying to force things, so it feels it feels good in my body. That's beautiful. It sounds liberating. It makes me think of that old adage of wisdom. You know, whatever you give your attention to is what grows, right? So if we right. focus on on that, that's that's, that's right. That's, that's right. That's going. Exactly. Exactly. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, I think it's very relevant. I. Then want to hear a little bit about how you are orienting your work this day, these days, so that our listeners can get a little familiar um, with what you're up to. Yeah, no, I'd love to share. I'm feeling a little feisty these days, so bring it. Um, <laughs> you know, to speak to what you said earlier, since the uprisings last year in the summer, uh, there's been a big shift in the attention being given to the work that my organization does, the work that we do every day, and the, the need to elevate women of color into positions of leadership, um, providing access to capital, um, a lot of sort of um, folks waking up to the fact that we have to redistribute a mm -hmm. few things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, I'm very interested right now in the work that we're doing, which is growing in scale, to be leaders of the kind of things we need to be creating in our communities, rather than being passive, right? And then waiting for you to tell me what we need. No, no, we know with community what is needed and you need to give me the money, That's like great. all the money. That's <laughs> great. I'm like serious about it. I'm like, stop it. I mean, and it's, and it's, holding an abundance mentality, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm, we, we as an organization, me as a person in my soul, like we believe in abundance, right. right? not scarcity. And that now is a time of abundance for right. black and brown people. And we have to prepare our projects ready and the people we work with ready to receive that investment. That's awesome. And so that's where we are orienting our work That is exciting. That is exciting and vibrant. I can feel the I can feel the the power behind the assertion of abundance. And and for people that that are not familiar with the radical nature of your work, of your project, how would how would you describe what you what you all set out to do? Yeah, we are um, architects and designers, right? So creatives, but we're also financiers, real estate developers. We're very much, we call ourselves the hive mind these days. So we're a hive mind of, of built environment professionals who are looking to build the infrastructure to end mass incarceration and really address racial inequity in the built, that is embedded in the built environment, right? Racism is embedded into it and we have to unbuild it. And we have to build a lot of new things. So we take this approach of radical imagination through creative practice um, to develop these new places 
that have not existed before or need to exist, um, with focus on black and brown communities who have been most impacted by mass incarceration and the centuries of disinvestment. And it's, it's a process, yeah. but of course it has a beautiful outcome, right? A beautiful place, a beautiful building, a beautiful anything, right? We do pop-up stuff too, a beautiful room, uh, but also ownership, right? That the community has ownership at every level. Maybe they own the building themselves. Maybe they have an equity stake in the project. Maybe they see themselves in ownership through just the design, right? They contributed to it in a lot of different ways. Um, and we want these models to be replicated, right? We need new models, right? We need some new stuff done in a different way. That's not, if we kept doing the old thing, the way we've always done it, we're not gonna get anything new. We can't do it the old way. That's right. It has to be new ways right. and new things come out of it. You know, Dana, you have spoken so eloquently in the past about how we live in someone else's imagination. It's a, it's a, I actually have quoted you in other work I do because I think it's such an important way of thinking about our environment and our space, how it was imagined by someone else and under very, very different conditions, especially for people of color. Could you speak a little bit more to that? Yeah, and I also want to give credit where it's due. Okay. So Dr. Benjamin Ruha, I think her name is, she's a, a professor in Princeton, um, and she kind of ignited that language. And I've just been borrowing it because it's Great. so perfect for what we, we do because uh, we are living in someone else's imagination. And it was, you know, the founding fathers of this country and before who, it's their imagination, right? And the way the buildings look and the environment is structured and, and everything after that. So uh, I didn't imagine this environment. Nobody asked me. <laughs> Right. <laughs> what, yeah, yeah. what our cities and towns should look like and our homes should look like. And uh, if we look at indigenous architecture, we could see it looks really different, yeah. right? There's just a different quality to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if we go to other countries, the built environment looks different because it's being imagined by a different cultural context. Right. So we can imagine anything we want. Nothing has to look the way it has before. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You we know, can yeah. imagine new stuff. Yeah, that's that's just a, that's so much so much of what I love about what you all are up to, and what comes to mind. I've been, um, for good or ill, I've been watching The Crown, and uh, there's this, uh, you know, when they come out of the palace, and there's this this statue of an angel, right, in a post, and it's ironic because it makes me think about the the symbol of independence in Mexico, which is also this kind of Eurocentric angel in what, in, in, in what used to be the capital of the Aztec empire, right? With its own, I mean, one of the things that happens when you go to Mexico City is you feel like it's a place that has been there for so long. And yet, and yet this other imagination, this other symbolism was superimposed upon it, right? Yeah, um, good example. Powerful contrast, powerful contrast. Yeah. And, so, and so in what you do, you know, I often think of, of my own work as a forward-facing remembering. And what I mean by that is we can often get caught in romanticizing the past, the lost past, what has been taken from us so much that we imagine that it was perfect, right? 
And, and of course, we know it wasn't uh, when you when you think about it just a little bit, even even before colonization and slavery, you know, it, it was like everything, like every human endeavor. It was it was important. Sure. And yet, and yet, there's something that has been taken that needs to be reclaimed about what it means to be a human being, to be in communion with this earth. That the you know those those things are wisdom that have been stolen maybe from all humans, right? Even right, all including us. the all exactly, it. including yes, the, the yes. Europeans. So there's yeah. a remembering, but there's also a forward facing. Like what is new? What what is it that hasn't been imagined yet? And I think yeah. of, of of kind of our spiritual social cultural project as as being about that and i'm wondering how that fits uh the design uh, of space um, that you're involved in yeah that that's a great question and it's also something i think we hold because my firm is predominantly women of color led and we really do hold this sort of the indigenous wisdom and the things that we're trying to reclaim that have been lost at the same time, um, looking towards a future that integrates those things, right? We call it being the is. So when you go to look at design, we're sitting at the juxtaposition of many, many times, many disciplines, right? Trying to hold it all so that we can actually manifest something that is based in truth. Mm-hmm. And so when you go to think about design, you're looking at the great mother, you're looking like, how do we protect our planet by what we make, right? Whether it be wind generating, solar generating, water collecting, recycled materials, um, beautiful landscape that captures rainfall and, and distributes it into the ground in a wow. safe way, right? All of these things that we're looking at. How are we creating spaces for young people, right? That cares for the elders, that cares for families, that cares for those in our community that have been most marginalized. What do those spaces, environments look and feel like? You know, like we're developing this idea of a commons or community space in our buildings in Detroit and thinking about ways that it will feel like you can just flow and move through it and you're welcome and you're included and you belong, right? So looking at social factors, natural factors, um, rethinking financial structures for these kinds of places that we make. How does the community own it and, nice. and have an equity stake in the project? So how do we support regenerative systems through the build it, built environment And that is about looking to the past and using technology that is yet to emerge and using ancient processes and looking at some new stuff like crowdsource funding platforms. You know, like you can't leave the past. You have to reclaim the wisdom from the past and the emergent technologies and the emergent all the time in order to manifest something that's really beautiful and impactful and supportive of, of our communities. That's, that is, that is phenomenal. And as I hear you speak about all of the angles, right, from the financing, the community engagement, to the actual design of the space, to the technology, and how you have this, this hive, um, what are you learning, right, about bringing this thought together because I feel like so much of the paradigm shift 
that I work on my clients to move from is, is this kind of industrial mindset that siloed everything into categories, right? Into this emergent networked way. But but we don't have all the tools. We're very trained in the old, right? So it's not always easy to figure out how to structure our work in the hive. And I'm wondering what you're learning about that as a leader in this work. Yeah, it, it's so spot on. I, it's so critical and it's hard. Yeah, It is hard. I often talk about biodiversity mm-hmm. and the way that this these structures of siloing mirrors how we've treated nature, right? We do monocrops and we, we just plant one thing, but really it's got to work in this interconnected way. And it's it's been challenging, right? Because we are so conditioned. I'm literally right now trying to initiate things in our in the in the business to initiate this hive mind, mm-hmm. right? I'm, I literally on Friday we have hive mind sessions where we look at a project from everybody's angle, right? And I have to have like a lot of one-on-one coaching sessions too with people about. What is keeping you in this old paradigm? What is hard for you around trying to learn and adapt another set of, of disciplines? And we're doing teaching, right? We're doing these, these um, every Thursday, we are having happy hours where we teach each other something, right? We teach each other what we know. That's phenomenal. Right, so that we're teaching one another language, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. ways of thinking, and it's it, but it's hard. People really are resistant. That 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 sounds. Uh, thank you for the honesty of that, because I do think it's important for people to know that that it's we are we are creating you know, paving new ground here, and so and and there's like there are ways of training that we got to unlock. When when you were talking about the teaching each other, um, a book that is an important point of reference for me is called The Blueprint by Nicholas Christakis, right? And he talks about a social suite of things that through time have made societies work. And he says it's like our social DNA for like functional. And I believe it's like eight different things. And one of them is uh, social learning. We, we th- our communities thrive when we make room for that, and I think I think that's another important break in the mindset. I, th- I think we came we came up thinking that you have to be a teacher or a PhD to teach something, right? Yeah. Forgetting that like a sixth grader can teach something to a fourth that's grader, right. right? That's right. You don't have to know at all. You can just teach that's a right. little bit that you know. And I just appreciate that you that what a smart thing. Um, I wanted to mention and, and see how if you've played with it. One of the key things that I've learned and work with in the process of this kind of creating these ecosystems is paying a lot of attention to what we might call the social field or, or the relational field, right? So a lot more attention than would happen at the normal workplace for people yeah. to, to get to know each other as humans, right? To, to, because that's the other thing that has been uh, siloed, right? Like, this is my totally. personal life, this is my work. Yes. Uh, and we need boundaries for the, the busyness of the work but we need permeability for the relational bits, you know? Totally. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's been like our, our, you know, one of our core values is, is relational, mm-hmm. being relational relationships. Nice. And everything we're doing now, when we partner with new people, we have a relationship building period. Mm-hmm. We just get to know each other. What do we really care about? 
you know, understanding that even internally in the organization, the whole person has got to be acknowledged. And I know that companies are starting to do this more. Um, it helps also, again, having a predominantly Black female-led organization <laughs> because we bring that lens to the relationality of it, right? That's very, very much, very feminine, very, you know, emotional, connected, vulnerable context in the workplace. That's and awesome. that's, that's, I don't want to be in any other kind of environment. Mm -hmm. So, and we don't have to struggle, Gibran, right? If happens, uh, we just kind of be, we're just doing our thing. This is what it looks like when black women lead. Uh, it's That's good. So it's a good thing for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> it's awesome to see you smile so big as you speak about it. It, it moves. It moves something in me again. I get some. I get some goosebumps when I hear. Feel like I'm hearing hearing a deep truth. So thank you for, thank you for for gathering folks in that way around such an important bit of work. So then let's talk a little bit about what is quite literally the opposite, right? Which is mass incarceration, right? which is, I think, a core concern of yours. And, and we know from, it's, it's not, we know that we can, you can draw the line, right? From, from slavery to Jim Crow, to mass incarceration. We know it's, 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 it is the continuation of the country's foundational sin and it dehumanizes. And um, it's quite close to my, to my community as well. You know, it's something that it's really interesting. I'll go on a quick side here. My brother and I were taking a bus from Boston where, where um, we were in school to Springfield uh, to go to see our, our parents in Massachusetts. And we just heard a couple of guys, Puerto Rican guys, comparing prisons. They, they, had, they, 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 had, they had just been let out and they were literally comparing one from the other because they have been through more than one. And it was just, it's just, it's a, it's an experience that really stays with me that the people in my, in my young community sharing that, that buzz with me. Um, that's part of, that's part of your community's life, being inside, spending time in places like that. And I'm just wondering where you are with that centrally important endeavor. Yeah, I mean, it's it's very um, up for me right now because a, a colleague of ours got um, arrested, picked up and put in jail this over the weekend. And it's totally ridiculous and related to some racist um, accusations. And he's probably the sweetest person I know. And just to see him, you know, really, he's really working in a community and trying to do really good things. But you know, the system is so sticky and it's so, the racism that in our culture is so pre prevalent, right? And that system reinforces that. So it's, um, it's ongoing work, yeah. you know? It's a big thing to dismantle. Yeah. It's a big thing and it's going to take a long time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and we've internalized it ourselves. So the, the self-work is critical. Like I was mm -hmm. talking to a, a, an amazing man who's a PhD, formerly incarcerated, just, he's like, you've got to do the self-work and you've got to do the social work mm -hmm. at the same time. So always holding the balance of, of fighting these systems and figuring out what is our mind to do, mm -hmm. like how much of this, so that I'm also having a joyful life. Yes. 
with pleasure and other things, right? And so what is mine to do? What is my organization's to do? Mm. Always holding that clarity because uh, we're at an exciting time where like some awesome stuff is happening too, Mm. right? Where we see counties choosing to implement an alternative to incarceration infrastructure and youth incarceration, rethink the whole system. We're looking at a lot of rethinking of systems at a regional level and even a state level here in California and other places that is very exciting to see. And we are supporting those things, right? So, so what is it that comes to, to mind or, you know, it, or, or what is the kind of creative spirit that arises? What are the things you consider when you're trying to create, to l- create a built space that is, that is not that, right? That is not, yeah. That dominant, this is what we do with our people who might or might not even make mistakes. We put them with, what are the things you consider when you're building something to, to meet this challenge? Well, the, f- the first thing we consider are the needs of the people that are going to use, live, work in the space. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, what, what do they need? Right. And in a way, you're, you're almost an, an archi- as an architect, you're almost an interpreter. Mm-hmm. of people's beliefs, desires, and, and passions, right? Because that I, I'm able to visualize three-dimensional space very easily. I'm able to conceptualize ideas and turn them into built form. That's just what the architect does. Mm-hmm. So I have to talk to you and I have to understand what you need and I have to spend time with you uh, so I can translate those beliefs, desires, philosophies, you know, cultural practices into built form. And if I do that, I'm able to manifest something that's actually effective Mm -hmm. and amplifying and anchoring and fomenting, right, of the the values, needs, desires that are required. Mm. No, so if you look at the built environment we have now, nobody did that, right? The founding fathers didn't go to the enslaved people who would be working there, like, Hey, what kind of space would you like? What do you need? What is a what nourishes you? What what brings you peace? Nobody cared, right? right. It was built for the elite and those in power, and it, it does that quite well. Right. right. It looks like power. It looks like the patriarchy, right? Mm-hmm. And, and just as our city skyscrapers represent capitalism, right? We just build the thing. Right. So as soon as you ask and inquire, wow, what does a space for restorative justice look like? what is a restorative care village rather than a mental health jail? What would that kind of care, what does care mean to you? What is a place for holistic care look and feel like? That depends on the community. You can't assume that it's the same and then cookie cutter it all over the place. You have to ask and then listen and give them the tools to express that, right? More than language, right? We rely, that's also... uh, Mm. um, a colonialist thing, like the reliance on language rather than visual or storytelling, like other ways of communicating, sharing information. Yeah. So I like to share the tools of an architect with the folks we're working with. You can draw. Here's a knife and some paper. Build a mo- Let's build models together. Let me teach you about diagramming. Anybody, can, a kid can diagram. A diagram is a powerful tool. I teach that to people. So I co- we co-learn together. I teach you what I know, just to go back to what we said, you teach me what you know, and then together we come up with a new idea for a place. 
a center for equity, a center for restorative justice and restorative economics, a pop-up village, a peacemaking center, like whatever. I mean, there's like lists of stuff I'm learning about all the time. Like, oh, that's a good idea. We should make a youth hive, a 24-hour youth hive. What is that? You know, it's like awesome, right? Yes, that's awesome. That's that's so good. I really appreciate your reminding us of, of how our reliance on language is really a big part of the colonial and it just kind of biases also a certain part of the brain, you know? And so that, that and it will reproduce the same thing that that part of the brain uh, is addicted to or, or, or prefers to see. Yeah. Um, you know, Diana, I, none of us are born kind of like this, you know? I mean, yes, we are. In many ways we are. Like our, our spirit, there's something in our spirit that is being called forward, but there are experiences in a life, right? That, the drive us in in the direction of, of our vocation, particularly those of us that are blessed to follow our vocation. And and I'm wondering how how did Diana become Diana? You know, what what are the what are the parts of your biography um, or your story um, that that send you in this direction? Yeah, I, I think about that sometimes in that. I think a big piece of it was growing up in rural Virginia in a white community that we desegregated and living between these conditions and really what was Jim Crow South, right? It was not long before Jim Crow had ended that we moved to this community. So you had black folks, you had white folks. Black folks were poor, living on one side of town. White folks were poor too. Uh, but, you know, then you had some middle and upper class folks who were living on another part of town. And we moved into the community. So I grew up in a kind of condition of not belonging at all. And and to some degree, the not belonging, while it was painful and isolating and, and not something I'd wish on anybody, what it did do is it gave me a kind of independent thought that I think gives me a perspective I, I would not have had had I been clearly embraced by my community, right? There's, and, and had a clear understanding. I was like, I'm outside of all of these things, right. race, class, right? I'm just hanging out over here. Mm-hmm, right. <laughs> so um, I often can see things differently than others can because I'm not as socialized into a being of a thing Mm -hmm. Um, and then I also spent a lot of time overseas which was very helpful in deprogramming me as an American that was Mm -hmm. very very valuable to leave and then come back yeah so I you know perspective I have a different perspective do do you have a a memory of a of an age um, when this kind of the more the more jarring parts of this experience of belonging, I'm often curious as to when when do we start to take shape? You know, do you have any? You know, I just remember being very young. Yeah, maybe three, four, three and four. Okay, and engaging with the community around me and being rejected by the community around me very clearly. I mean, just obvious stuff like being called the N-word. Right. Uh, horrible, people say horrible, would say horrible things to me. 
horrible things. And often children, right? So it's interesting how we teach our children. The children just parrot the things. But I just remember being completely rejected. Um, even just to play, right? You know, yeah. simple as playing. Like kids, yeah. you think, oh, kids play together. No kid, kids wouldn't play with me. Right. And so early on being like, oh, I'm, there's something wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And teachers were horrible, right? Teachers were horrible. So you're like, wow, I must be a really bad thing. Mm. You know, and that's like, yeah. that's what you get taught, right? Yeah. Any child of color is getting taught that at some level. Yeah. Mine was just very stark. Right, right. Um, so um, I was looking at a picture of myself in third grade yesterday that my uh, uh, old friend posted and it's like all white kids and me. <laughs> I right. just was just can't remind like, oh yeah, here it is again. Right. And then I'm like, oh, how did they recognize me? I, it's so little. I'm like, oh, that's how they recognize me. I'm the little brown dot in the middle. And they put me in the middle, right? They composed the shot. <laughs> and I was laughing. I was like, uh-huh. So um, yeah, that, that, that has an impact yeah. if you, and if you can survive it, right. Yeah. If you can survive it and I've had to do an incredible amount of healing work, yeah. right. To, to recover. Yeah. If you survive it, the, the gift and medicine that you can bring mm-hmm. is quite powerful. Mm-hmm. It's really powerful. So I'm clear about what my obligation is. Right? I'm clear about that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing such an intimate part. I, I think it's helpful for people to to get the contrast between the powerful person that's in front of us and and the adversity, and also to understand that this is an experience that is shared among people of color. You know, I have a, have a nine year old, and you know, you were half that age. You know, I can I still can't imagine. You know, I still want to protect them from everything, and and the fact that our parents can't, right? That there's some there's so much happening, and. Diana, then do you have a memory of um of a kind of political awakening of sorts of a just like political in the broadest of senses, right? Like this this sense of this 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 story is not true. The story we've been told is not true, and the power structure. I'm in the wrong side of it here, and I don't want to be. Yeah, it it was. It took a while. Yeah, it was like a slow. I call it a slow build. Uh huh. And it started to happen overseas. You know, I don't, for some reason, being outside of the country allowed me to see some stuff I couldn't see. And I started to ask some questions. I was like, well, why are we doing these projects? I remember looking at a project in China. They wanted to do a huge city. And I looked at the pictures. I'm like, but people live there now. So what are you going to do with those people? And there was no response. Right? The response was like, oh, Deanna, we don't ask those kind of questions. Like, well, I'm asking them, like, I'm not okay with this scenario. And I, but I didn't have much control. And then I, I came back to the US and, and I remember seeing Fanya Davis and Angela Davis, civil rights activists, talking about restorative justice. And I think what my issue was, I didn't have a way to, I didn't feel like I had a way I could do anything, right? I didn't feel like I had an answer on like, I'm going to do this and it's going to help something, right? I just was like, this is kind of a mess. I don't, there's nothing, I just need to stay out of it, right? I just need to lay low and try to survive. And when I started to see that there was something I could do, 
it was easier to become more politically engaged and active. I needed an action item. I needed to, a path forward. Mm-hmm. And for me, it became initiated by, oh, I'm going to see how I can support this restorative justice thing. Right? This thing seems good. You know, this, this, I had a goosebumps moment hearing about, oh, there's this indigenous justice that's reignited that is really about repair. I was like, well, why aren't we repairing? I just repaired myself. I know we can repair. Nice. So I can support this. Like I can do, this is something I can do. And then it grew, grew, grew to be like, yeah, I can ask questions and I can come up with answers and I can take action in a solutionary kind of way. Like I'm just a solutionary. I'm not like a, I can't just sit there and be like, that's bad. (laughs) I'm like, well, what are we going to (laughs) do? Right. Right. That's lovely. Yeah. That's probably why that's one of the reasons why I like you so much, I think, because that that's that's the right that the approach that resonates with me, the solutionary one. Um and so I also know that you have a vibrant and spiritual life. And sometimes I make a distinction between this kind of social political awakening and, and then the spiritual awakenings. And they they can be well interwoven with each other, but there's some distinction. And I'm wondering. I'm wondering about that because I think, you know, one of my assertions would be that I wouldn't be talking to you about the healing that you have done, right? And all that work, if I wasn't including that part. And I'm just wondering about that part of your journey. What can you share? I appreciate that, Jabron. I don't speak about it very often. Mm-hmm. And yet it's essential mm-hmm. and core to the work, to be able to do the work, Um And the way I was able to have that political awakening or that sort of awakening, like, oh, I'm going to do this, was because I had a kind of another kind of awakening in my late 20s. Um, And it had a lot to do with, you know, the trauma that I had experienced in my life had led me to a point of being very severely depressed. Mm -hmm. Really, really. And and I had been suffering from depression from about the age of 10. So this is now 29. So it's a long time of suffering, you know, from moderate to severe depression almost all my life and hit a kind of second or third rock bottom. And but in that moment of my Saturn return, realizing, oh, this is not my true nature. Mm-hmm. This is not who I actually am. I didn't always used to be like this. Mm-hmm. And I began a, an intensive journey of a kind of recovery, right? Every kind of modality. I mean, I'll try any modality. Like, <laughs> <laughs> but my spiritual practice deepened. And it was always there, right? I was always, you know, but it really deepened. And, you know, I did the Hoffman process and I did some super intensive, uh, you know, multi-day retreats, you know, psycho-spiritual retreats. I, I found spiritual teachers to work with, spiritual communities, and that, and became committed at that time, in that single moment, right, that this is not my true nature. That single moment, I committed my life to, to waking up. And, 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 you know, we all know this is multi-lifetime kind of work, so, yeah. but had I not done that, there's no way I could be doing what I'm doing now. I had yeah. to heal myself. Yeah. And that's ongoing, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm literally in a process of doing sub-Saharan uh, indigenous divination work right now, ritual-based work to do more healing, right? It never ends. Right. 
you know, it's just ongoing because we carry not only things from this lifetime, but our ancestors, ancestral pain and trauma that also has to be addressed. So there's a lot of healing to do. Mm -hmm. And I often say like everything that we are doing in our lives needs to be in the agency of some kind of healing for for ourselves, for others. So like my design process is trauma-informed and intended to be under... um, Underneath that is like an intention to help people heal Mm. just by engaging them and caring for them and showing them they're valued and they're useful and, and all of that. So the healing journey is critical. I just don't share it that often because it's, you know, the whole other, a whole other dimension (laughs) (laughs) of the work, right? And it's never ending. Yeah. 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 Thank you for sharing it with me and with us. I, uh, one of the frames I often think about is, you know, I think of healing oversimplified as, as an a spectrum, right? Of like zero is you are totally traumatized. You have no idea. You're throwing your trauma on everybody around you. You're definitely not a good energy to be around. <laughs> and then a hundred being you, you're so cleared, you know, you're so whole that people just literally wake up by being in your presence, you know? And I often in my work, I think about, you know, we want to get to 51%, right? We want to, there's plenty of healing in front of us, a lifetime of healing, but, but we've done enough to reorient, right? Enough to like, okay, now before the 51%, you really just got to be focused on getting yourself together, right? On the healing that you need on like the safety is more important and all of those things that are like environments for your healing. But eventually you want to get to a point in which you can, you can give and and you don't want to rush there, right? Because we have the, we have the archetype of the wounded healer, right? That's kind of evading their own healing. Or, yeah. And and I just feel like I, that's a little bit of what I, what I feel and hearing you is, that that shared awareness that we have that there's plenty of healing in front of us but that something something shifted and the momentum the momentum is in your favor the momentum is in our favor in terms of the healing process and it's it's that it's always powerful to be with with people who are embodying that and in service of the world and and the work so thank you those are my favorite people yeah Braun, my favorite people to be around. It feels the same way, Diana. It really does. It really does. And, you know, as we keep talking about this, have you read or heard about Adrian Marie Brown's recent pamphlet, We Will Not Cancel Us? It's a book. It's a very short book. Uh, we Will Not Cancel Us. I haven't. And since I fangirl her and adore her work, I should get it immediately. <laughs> yeah, I highly, I can't wait to talk to you about it. I can't wait to talk to you about it. We can talk about it a little bit here because you're talking about restorative justice and one of the things she she points to which is just nuance we don't need to to get into this is not why i'm asking but she talks about transformative justice right so restorative kind of brings things back into balance transformative makes them even better than they were which is such a high beautiful threshold and she speaks about it from the from the consciousness of abolition she went abolitioning the prisons altogether very very radical beautiful stuff grounded in in spirit and as we read from the title is a direct um it's a direct way to tackle cancel culture 
to tackle the way in which those of us that that stand or claim to stand on the side of justice are are replicating this possibility, right? With with these cancellations and this tearing people down for the slightest thing, and I'm just wondering. Yeah, it's it's just it tends to be easier, right, to look at the prison industrial complex and and white supremacy and all of those things than to look at the way some of these shadows play out among us who are standing for for something better. And I'm just wondering if you have any insights on on, on what can we do to, to continue to heal that, to shift that posture, what is necessary um, for us to apply some of these things that you've been working so hard on um, within movements, not necessarily in opposition. Yeah, I mean, I do think that leading by an example and sharing our mm-hmm. view that we've, we really have to talk to everybody, mm-hmm. everybody, and that people are going to mess things up and that everyone has a shadow side and everyone has that part of them, right? right? And there's kind of a compassion in it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, people will still piss me off. Don't get it twisted. Like, <laughs> I will go. I can get crazy. I want to crack some skulls. But at the end of the day, we really have to hold that, that the both and. Yeah. So we say that, I say that a lot, like, yep, both and, 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 and be the is, don't be the, you know, don't go into this thing. Because a lot of the times we'll work with folks like, well, you can't talk to those people. You know, those people And I'm like, oh, no, no, no. We have to talk to those people, Mm -hmm. you know. And that there's, there may be a, something they have to contribute or to offer. Right. They're not perfect, right? We know they did janky thing here or, but, you know, let if we do this rejecting and cutting or canceling, yeah. as you say, of people. I, I emailed someone the other day who got really upset with us. And I just said, look, we are more alike than we are unalike. Mm-hmm. We are actually on the same heading in the same direction. It's important we stay in relationship with one another. Right really critical and they weren't open to it right but i can't force them i just keep the i keep the door open like all right well i'll be in town i'll hope to see you when i'm there we'll have a coffee nice exactly (laughs) if you are if you are available and are open to it just all we just keep leaving the door open a little bit right some people you need to close it all the way let's not get it twisted but most people yeah you need to at least talk to them once yeah yeah and figure out yeah, it connects it connects to the spiritual work, right? There's something about there's something that we're called into, which is which is about taking a higher ground or or, or you know uh, and again it's not to be walked all over, it's not to not have boundaries, right? Is but yeah. it's uh, but the the co- compassion really is the word that comes to mind, right? Like seeing each other's humanity and acknowledging that 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 darkness runs through me you know it runs through each of us and we in some way are externalizing it and uh, yeah. and it, it it's not you know when, we, when you talked about stories earlier it's it's part of not having a mythos right uh, uh not having the stories that remind us that there's a journey into our own 
the evil inside of us and that there will always be something unknown in the horizon always that needs to be confronted yeah i mean how many times it's always amazing to me i'll meet like a really elevated conscious person right a spiritual teacher deeply elevated in their consciousness and then you'll see something about where they have this nasty shadow side right like nasty you're like oh damn you didn't see that like that it can be like that intense yeah right yeah. so if you think that you are having you don't got one and you don't see it like i'm finding new stuff all the time yeah you know? yes. like just keep on digging because uh, you'll find more. There's more. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. it's dangerous because if you don't do it, you end up, you could become a pretty dangerous person, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So always look, always yeah. be looking. Amen. Amen. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. And thank you for everything that you're up to. It's, it's really exciting to to talk to you in this time kind of post uprising when people are waking up and to know that you are positioned with your crew to step into this moment and uh is there anything else that you want us to know about your work about um your thinking well you know what's on my mind lately is just wanting to elevate our work and the beauty of our work mm -hmm for and the beauty of design and how we are good designers, right? We design, we're good at it. And the work we make is beautiful for our beloved community as it should be, right? That that beautiful, making beautiful space is a form of love, yeah. is a form of caring for people. And often we find in our industry that black folks are relegated to being the assist, doing the community engagement, but not given any ownership or leadership around the design of the space. And we're really trying to combat that and wanting to elevate the work that we do with community as being the best, right? The best it gets, right? And and because we deserve it. Amen. So I just want to elevate that and honor that. Yeah. despite the fact that we get our challenge, people want to pigeonhole us into to this or that. The other is a black firm. We will keep fighting to, to show that design excellence is, um, yeah, we're the best. I love it. <laughs> I am proud to know the best. I'm excited about it. I, I like it, like it, like it. Thank you for that. Thank you, Diana. This will feel like a little bit of a, a left turn, but it's a question I, I, I ask all my podcast guests. Um, and it comes from my own work on, you know, we are just talking about our own shadows, right? And the work that I've had to do as I work through my own sins of patriarchy. And so I do men's work. In fact, today, uh, to this evening, we'll have a, a call for the Better Men Project, which is one of the projects I call. And and I think it's, it's very important work. And oh, my God. Thank you, Javon, <laughs> for doing that work. It's so important. It's maybe the most important work on the planet, I think. That's, thank you. That's a very powerful assertion. And I think I think you're onto something because there's a way in which it's also where, it's where the damage comes from, right? It's where the hurt comes from. It's where the pillaging of the earth comes from. Yes. And, uh, and so I always ask in this long post Me Too moment when so much of this stuff has been exposed, you know, uh, 
at least to this, you know, and I always trusted to say exposed because people have always known, right? But I kind of called out and brought to the light and named and um, what, what do you think men should do, right? In order to be better men? Like what, what would you say, what would you would speak to us? It's interesting, and I don't know if this is related to, I'm feeling very sad right now for men. Mm -hmm. Really, in my heart, I'm just like sad for them. Yeah. And what, what's happened to them yeah. from, from this patriarchy. I wish that men would find a way to be loving and vulnerable with one another. Mm -hmm. and have encouraged the men in my life to do so um to like be be with men mm -hmm. and heal together with men it's not my don't come asking me to do it right. women have taken on enough of the load yeah and you know i really truly wish they would do their inner patriarchy work i have to do my inner patriarchy work as a woman so i know y'all's gotta do it that's right and, and do it with one another and and love one another and be in community with one another use other men as a resource yeah. to grow yeah and heal same with white folks right they need to do the same kind of thing with one another right um and prioritize that because I don't know how to get men to wake up to this situation. Like I don't, right. you know, I get so much pushback from men when I even bring it up. Hmm. They get really reactive, really defensive. Doesn't matter what race, it's all, all they all get like that. And I don't know how to help them. And I'm sad for them. You know, yeah. I don't know what to do to help you guys. Yeah. This is why I think your work is so important, Jabron, because it's not, we're not gonna until we end the patriarchy, we can't save the earth. That's right. Yeah. This is not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. We have got to, got to, got to um, access our feminine and honor it. And mm -hmm. men, I mean, men are going to be so juicy, happy once they let their inner <laughs> feminine come on. They're going to be like, what? You know? <laughs> They're missing out. Yes. I, I would love for them to recognize that this is not about men and women. It's about energies. Yeah. Um, and um, I invite men to explore what does the divine masculine look and feel like? That's right. What is your purpose? What is your purpose? Because I think men are in a crisis of purpose. That's right. I agree with you. I agree with like, you. Why are you even, what, what is my purpose being here? Yeah. And there is a purpose. And, and my God, what a, what a beautiful moment to sort of not be anchoring your purpose in toxic old paradigms, but, oh, what is my purpose? in this new emergent masculine, like what a great inquiry for men. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's deep, powerful, and important wisdom. I'll bring some of it to my call even this evening. We'll apply it right away. Thank you. And and then here really, really is the, the last question, or it's a little simple exercise, a little light touch facilitation with your consent. Uh, it, it's, it's just an invitation for you to, if you're willing, visualize yourself 20 years from now. Right? 
and you've accomplished many of the things you set out to accomplish. And some of them you did not. And there's some things that are things we struggle with all of our lives. And there's just your life, you know, 20 years from now. And so you don't have to tell us what that is. We're just going to get a glimpse. And so if you could come back from that space with that wisdom, what advice would you give yourself? And what advice would you give us? I think um, the advice I would give myself is to 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 relax, mm -hmm. to not get so caught up and all of the machinations, like it's all gonna, you don't have any control anyway, so you, you just might as well let it go. Which <laughs> is the great, great, you know, wisdom with age where you get older, you just know it's like, mm, don't even, you're worrying about a whole bunch of stuff you don't need to worry about. And so I think that's the message to myself. And I just think to everyone else, it's like time to wake up. Nice. nice. Time to wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up. I see. Um, you're sleeping and the house is on fire. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. There's a lot, there's a lot worth waking up for. There's a lot worth to, you know, worth saving. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your wisdom, your generosity, your vocation and your vision. Thank you for your friendship very specially. Oh, thank uh, you, Jabron. Yeah, this is really special. Appreciate I appreciate you. it so much. Yeah, similarly, I, thank you. Yeah. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll let you know when it gets published. But this has been Great. medicine, Great. really good. Yeah, me too. Medicine. Me too. Yeah. It's always really so sweet to be with you. So I was like, when it didn't work out last time, I was like, that's fine. We'll just do it again. It's just get to hang out with Jabron. <laughs> I know I feel better after doing it. <laughs> I feel really good too. Thank you. If you get this far into the podcast, it's because you get what we're doing. We're not trying to reach everybody. We want to reach the right bodies. And so what I'm asking you to do is to think about one or two people that you could take this podcast and forward it to them, whether it be a text, an email, a note from you. You know that social media is a crowded and messy place. And the way we are going to build community is not by big broadcast, but by person to person, peer to peer, finding the connection with what we're trying to do. I'd love to ask you to be a part of that. Uh, that's how we'll grow. And I don't mean grow for growth's sake, but that's how we will be able to, to sustain this work and to come together and experiment with new ways of being with. I want to shout out Audio Chemists and Austin Jade for the production of this podcast. And to you, I'm wishing that you stay awake and stay blessed. Thank you for listening. Many blessings.